So for those of us who remain, <laughs> boy, there's a lot of them. It's wonderful. <laughs> That's wonderful. Praise God. So good morning. Happy Easter. Yippee. <laughs> if you weren't here last week, uh, ask later. How about, how about this one? He is risen. He's risen indeed. You know, for 2,000 years on Easter morning, uh, Christians have greeted one another that way. One says he is risen. The other replies he is risen indeed. Um, indeed is just a word I don't use a lot. Do you? I, I don't know. Anyway, what if I said he is risen and you said he is risen? Should we try that one? He is risen. He is risen. He is. He is. And and what we want to talk about this morning is those three words. He is risen. Those three words are what we're all about this morning. We can say it because it's been a tradition for all of this time, but we can also know it and say it every day of the year because we know he is risen and it makes a difference in how we live. And it is true and it gives us hope when nothing else will. Think about it. Everything we love and enjoy and put our hope in will one day break or go bad or start, stop working. And that includes our stuff and our relationships and our bodies. All of that uh, just kind of goes the way of, of uh, things that are not eternal. And a risen Savior, though, gives us something to look forward to when all of that is gone. And so we have what the Apostle Paul calls eternal encouragement and good hope. He says that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Eternal encouragement and good hope. Those remain with us always because Christ is risen comes down to those three words. Christ is risen. How convinced are we of those three words? You might say, well, I believe in the resurrection. Well, is that the same as saying he is risen? I believe in the resurrection. I mean, it sounds a little theoretical to me. It sounds like a good theological construct, but is there something a little more concrete than that? It's much more concrete to say he is risen. Do you believe that? And how do you know? There's an old hymn that says, you ask me how I know he lives? And the answer is, he lives within my heart. And that's fine, but that's a little subjective, don't you think? Is there more to it than that? Is there something more objective than that? There are very few things in life that we can really know for sure, but I'm here to tell you this morning that the resurrection of Jesus is one of them. We can know that for sure. So, what do you know for sure? Let me share three things that we can know for sure and see if I can back them up. I think it'll give us greater confidence to say, he is risen, and really mean it. And what's more, it will give us confidence to live our lives in light of the resurrection. Because it makes a difference in how we live day to day. 
So let's take a look at the text. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll be um, for, if, if you got one of these from the back, uh, it's page 801, if you need a little help there. And uh, if you didn't grab one and want to, feel free to pop up and, and grab one. But we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which has become known as the resurrection chapter. Um, different chapters of the Bible kind of have different names. The, the love chapter is just two chapters before that, 1 Corinthians 13, and different ones. But 1 Corinthians 15 really is the resurrection chapter. We're going to look at verses 3 through 6 this morning. Here's what it says. Paul writes, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. What do you know for sure? Well, three things that I want to zero in on. The first is this. First, we can know for sure Jesus really died. Jesus really died. Verse 3, Paul says, I passed on to you as a first importance that Christ died. We'll just stop there without completing the verse. Christ died. He really died. One of the theories some people have suggested to explain away the resurrection is that Jesus really didn't die on the cross, that he fell unconscious and his followers were eager to get everything wrapped up before the Sabbath began at sunset, and so they took him down prematurely from the cross. He was unconscious. And then in the coolness of the tomb, he revived. What do you think of that one? The Bible gives us some details that would show us that that theory doesn't hold water. First, uh, you think about the physical abuse that Jesus suffered prior to the crucifixion and on the cross. Have any of you seen the movie, uh, The Passion of the Christ? It's a really graphic film. Tina and I watched it again yesterday. Um, it shows the incredible extent of the damage done to Jesus' body before he even got to Golgotha. The scourging by the Romans, it, it was a gruesome scene. But that sort of scourging often killed its victim right then and there. Jesus survived that, but had to carry his crossbeam to Golgotha. And remember, he carried it until he couldn't carry it anymore. And then Simon of Cyrene was conscripted to carry it for him. Then he got to the cross where they nailed his hands and feet in place. Crucifixion has been described by a classic article in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And that article, kind of like Mel Gibson's movie, is not for the faint-hearted either. But it goes into great length to describe a medical perspective of what happened on the cross. A person who is crucified is held in this position 
uh, where his arms are stretched out and, and it tightens the muscles across his chest so that he has difficulty in breathing. The pain is excruciating, and we get our word excruciating from uh, crucifixion. Ex meaning out of, uh, crucis meaning the cross. Out of the cross. It's excruciating pain. And so someone who is crucified, they give him that little thing to put his feet on so that he can push up because you have to push up in order to breathe. Exhaling is particularly difficult. And so when the Romans wanted to finish the job, they went and broke the legs of the two thieves that were crucified with Jesus so that they couldn't push up anymore to breathe and they would suffocate all the more quickly. But when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. And to make sure that he was already dead, they stuck a spear into his side and the text says, out came blood and water. They penetrated the pericardial sac and it was evidence that his heart had stopped. There is, in short, no way he wasn't dead. Let's just assume, though, for the sake of argument, that that he did fall unconscious. They did take him down too soon. First, think about what it would take for Jesus to pull off something that would be passed down to us as a resurrection. He's in the tomb, wrapped up like a mummy, by a bunch of people who have seen death before and believe him to be dead. They put him in there. He wakes up in the tomb after a couple of days without food and water. He gets out of 75 pounds of spices and wrappings, somehow removes the stone from the entrance to the tomb and gets past the guards goes and finds his followers and convinces them that he is the Lord of life and the conqueror of death, and then limps off somewhere to die while his followers preach that he ascended to heaven. Think what that would say about his character if he tried to pull that off, even if he could pull that off. The greatest moral teacher the world has ever known tricked his followers into believing a lie. No, the evidence is overwhelming. Jesus died on that cross. He was dead. And the text says it was for you and me. Again, what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He, the Holy One, he, the one who never sinned, died to bear the sin of the guilty, you and me. He was our substitute. He took our place. He bore our sin. Christ died for sins, according to the scriptures. A few weeks ago, I I shared some passages of scripture that you could sit down with a friend with over coffee and share the gospel without turning a page, one of them where, where the gospel comes down to a single verse is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And it says, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
to bring you to God. There is a wonderful encapsulation of the gospel in a single verse. Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous, the innocent one. For the unrighteous, you and me, the guilty. Why? To bring us to God. What do you know for sure? I know for sure Jesus really died. And he did it for me and for you. To bring us to God. Have you put your trust in him? Have you trusted that the sinless one bore your sin on the cross? Have you invited him to be your savior? Don't leave here today without knowing you belong to him. I know for sure Jesus really died. I know for sure also the tomb was empty. Look at verse 4. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus really died, and the tomb was really empty. Other world religions have shrines where they go and worship uh, where their founders were buried. We don't have a shrine like that. We have an empty tomb. In fact, we can't even identify it very well. There are different places in Jerusalem that claim to be the spot. We don't even know because he's not there. He's risen. You know, all you'd have to do if you wanted to disprove the resurrection would be to come up with the body. Come up with the body and the celebrations all over. That was the idea behind the movie Risen, the story of a Roman officer who searches for the body of Jesus and comes face to face with the risen Christ. If you haven't seen that one, that's one I would highly recommend. And if you see it, Let's get together for coffee and talk about it. It's a great film. Great film. If someone came up with the body of Jesus, that alone would take away our reason to celebrate. So how do you explain this empty tomb? There have been a couple theories through the years. One of them is that the women that went there on Easter morning got the wrong tomb. They went to the wrong place. Can't blame them. It was early. It was before dawn. They'd been crying all night. They were confused. They were lost. They took a wrong turn. They came to the wrong tomb. And when they got there, there was somebody there who said, what are you doing here? And they told him they were coming to finish preparing Jesus' body. And he tells them he's not here, meaning you're in the wrong place, ladies. You're in the wrong place. But they get all excited and then they run off and, and spread this word that Jesus is risen from the dead. Plausible? What did the angel really say to the women who came? He said, he's not here. He is risen. Just as he said, come see the place where he lay. And if the women came to the wrong tomb, well, then the soldiers were guarding the wrong tomb as well. And all of the rest of the disciples came to the wrong tomb too. They all had to be at the wrong tomb in order for that theory to work. There's another story, another theory to explain the empty tomb, and that is someone stole the body. Someone stole the body. That one started early, Matthew chapter 28, uh, starting at verse 11. The Jewish leaders tell the guards to, uh, if anybody asks, tell them the disciples stole the body. 
Well, it's hard to believe that followers of the greatest moral teacher who ever lived would want to pull that off in the first place. But even if they could get past the guards and steal the body, don't you think the hoax would eventually be uncovered? I mean, someone would break, right? Uh, after all, they, they suffered greatly for their faith. Uh, they, they died for their faith. Somebody would say, okay, enough torture. I'll, I'll tell you the truth. I'll admit this, this didn't happen. There was a fourth century church leader named Eusebius who uh, created a, 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 a dialogue that would have had to have taken place between the disciples if they wanted to try to pull that off. And the, the dialogue would have gone something like this. I've got an idea. Let's invent a bunch of stories about a risen Jesus that we never actually saw and give all that we have to share those stories, knowing them to be lies, and then let's eventually be killed for telling them. That would be what they'd have to do. Impossible that the disciples could have done that. So if they didn't do it, who might have? Well, what about the Jews? Would they have reason to do it? Maybe just to frustrate the Romans? But the rise of Christianity was frustrating enough to the Jews. All they would have to do to discredit Christianity if they stole the body was bring it out. So if it wasn't the disciples and if it wasn't the Jews, well, maybe it was grave robbers. Maybe they stole the body. But there'd be no financial reason to steal that body. There's nothing valuable in that tomb. They would have no capability to pull it off. They'd have to get past the Roman guards. And the guards knew that if they failed in their mission, it would cost them their lives. And that idea would offer no explanation of the other evidence on the scene, like the grave clothes. You don't unwrap a body before you steal it. So what do I know for sure? I know that Jesus really died. I also know the tomb was really empty. Not because the women got the wrong tomb, not because someone stole the body, but because Jesus rose from the dead. One more. I know he appeared to witnesses after his resurrection. Look at verses 5 and 6. That he appeared to Cephas, that would be Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. There is a theory that suggests the disciples were in such a mental state at this time that the mere suggestion of Jesus being raised from the dead would give them enough hope to hallucinate his being with them. Incredible? Hallucinations may come to a person, but do they come to a group of people at the same time? And some people didn't just see him once, but multiple times. And they didn't just see him either, right? They touched him. They had conversations with him. They ate food with him. 
In addition to the gospel accounts that talk about these post-resurrection appearances, Paul tells us here in verse 6 that 500 people saw him at the same time. And then he adds a little detail. He says most of them are still alive. Why would he say that? He's inviting people, if, if you want to talk to an eyewitness, ask one. They're still around. And the fact that he appeared to people transformed their lives. Think about Jesus' own brothers, James and Jude. In uh, Mark's gospel, chapter 3, we find they think he's crazy. They break into a place where he's speaking. They say, excuse us, we're, we've come to get our brother. He's crazy. And, and then in John chapter 7 that we're going to look at next Sunday, we see that they try to set him up. They try to get him to go to a place where people are seeking his life. And it tells us in the text it's because they didn't believe him. They didn't believe in who he said he was. But after the resurrection, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we find these brothers of Jesus there in the upper room praying with the rest of his disciples. Something happened. They had an encounter with the risen Christ. James would go on to become the leader of the Jerusalem church. He would be among the first martyrs. He would also give us the book of our New Testament that bears his name. This brother of Jesus who didn't believe in him before the resurrection. Jude as well would write his own book. He also would die for his faith. What changed them? It was an encounter with the risen Christ. What do I know for sure? Jesus died on that cross. The tomb was really empty, and Jesus appeared to witnesses and transformed their lives. The Apostle Paul tells us in this same chapter, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, the resurrection chapter, that if Christ is not risen, our preaching is useless. And our faith is useless. And we're false witnesses. And if all we have is this life, we're throwing this life away. We're pathetic, he concludes. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But the next verse, we can't stop at verse 19. The next verse says this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is risen. And because I can know that he is risen, I can know that I will be too. His resurrection gives me hope that goes beyond this life. Because he is the first fruits of the resurrection. First fruits is, is the, the first of the crop that's, that's in gathered. And it lets us know that the rest of the crop is coming. And the rest of the crop is all who have put their trust in Christ. As he has been raised, so shall we. 
He asked me how I know he lives. The evidence is overwhelming. You can bet your life on it. And you can invest your life because of it in God's purposes. It's called living by faith. By faith in this resurrected Christ. By faith in him that tells us there is more than this life. This is not all we're living for. This life is short. We have opportunity to use this brief life to do something with eternal impact. Let me put it this way. The resurrection changed everything for those early followers of Christ. Think of the Apostle Paul. He had a really good life before he became a believer. He had the best education. He had a great job. Very comfortable job, full of prestige, a lot of perks. And yet he gave all of that up for a life of hardship in following Christ. Why would he do that? because he'd met the risen Christ. And because of that, his life didn't make sense from that point forward, apart from the resurrection. To the average person on the street, he was throwing his life away. He had it all, and he threw it all away to follow Christ and to share Christ with others. So here's the question for all of us. Would you ever be accused of throwing your life away for Christ. Would anybody ever look at you and say, you're nuts, you're throwing your life away? Is there anything in your life and mine that only makes sense in light of the resurrection? Think about how you spend your time. The things you invest your time in. What you do with your money who you give your money to, how much of it you give, what causes you support. Think about uh, the goals you set, career aspirations, what you want to do with the rest of your life, what's on your bucket list. Think about the goals that you set. Think about the things that matter to you and the things that don't matter so much, the things that bug you and the things that you can let go of. The way you relate to people who you're willing to associate with, who you're willing to forgive, the things we're willing to endure, all of those things tell us where we're putting our perspective, where we're looking. And I would have to ask, are we different enough that people look at us and say, this doesn't make sense to me? The, the way you're living just doesn't make sense. Why are you living like that? And the answer would be because this life isn't all there is. So we can hold this life and everything in it with an open hand. So here's my challenge. Think of one thing that you can do, maybe a small thing, maybe a big thing. One thing that you can do that wouldn't make sense apart from the resurrection. If this life were all there is, this one thing, people would look at you doing it and say, that doesn't make sense to me. Maybe it would be how you spend your time. Maybe it would be how you spend your money. Maybe it would be 
your relationships and who you're willing to associate with and forgive. But having identified one thing, here's my challenge. Try doing it. Try doing it. Wouldn't it be great just to go all out and try it on one thing? Maybe big, maybe small. And really live out your faith. Let the resurrection turn your personal world upside down so that together we as a church can turn our community upside down. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the certainty that we can have that he really did die, that the tomb really was empty, that he really did appear to people and transform their lives. Thank you that we serve a risen Savior. Father, I just pray that that as we think about that, that it wouldn't just end in theory with us, that we wouldn't just say, well, I believe in the resurrection, but that we would truly say, he is risen. And because of that, we can order our lives differently from those who can only see this world so that we might live lives that really glorify you and bring people to you. Help us to live out that hope that we have that Jesus gives us in the resurrection, knowing that the first fruits of the resurrection has already shown up and the rest of the crop is following. Father, I pray that we would gladly be the rest of that crop and anticipate the day when we receive bodies like Jesus' resurrected body. Until then, keep us faithful to live in light of that day's coming. In Jesus' name, amen.